This is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to episode number six. All right. So, Don, I've heard that our guest today has entered into a pact with uh, some supernatural forces. <laughs> and essentially, the pact is he doesn't get to sleep, so he doesn't have to sleep at all. He gets a full 24 hours. And... But there's a small catch. In exchange, what he has to do is Android development for the rest of the hours that he gets free. It's a true story. (laughs) (laughs) Who might you be talking about, Kaushik? Welcome to the show, Jake Warden. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, Jake. All right. So before we get started with the show, uh, there are a quick few points that we want to touch from the previous show. So in our last episode, we talked about image libraries and uh, Michael Panzer on Google Plus was a little disappointed that we didn't give uh, UIL, the image library UIL, enough credit. So again, like we said in the last show, we don't want to rule out any library per se, but we're just speaking from experience and uh, Picasso just seemed like the library to get going quickly. And that's the one that I guess Don and I have most experience in, which is why we probably propped it up a little uh, exactly. higher. But uh, one thing that he said was uh, sort of interesting. He said UIL especially is very well architected, and that uh, caught my attention. So I guess when I get some time, I'll probably dig into the library and see how it's done. So just wanted to quickly mention that point. And I'd also like to give a, a shout out to to Gordon McCray, who's, li- who's a listener of the show, and I'd like to thank him for being so supportive. Uh, and Kaushik, you actually work with them. And last week when I was visiting your offices in Palo Alto, I was uh, didn't get a chance to meet him, so I was a little bummed out. But just wanted to say thanks again for uh, being so supportive of the show, Gordon. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it was fun meeting Don. I didn't expect you were this tall. I mean, I must say, you were pretty tall. <laughs> yeah, most people, that's the thing about working remote or doing everything remotely. Um, a lot of the clients that I work for don't know that I'm six foot four, uh, pretty close to six foot five. And so when I show up, everyone's like, whoa, you're about a foot taller than we expected you to be. So <laughs> it's a little, <laughs> little interesting. I have actually met Jake, and Jake's pretty tall too. Um, not, not quite as tall as Don. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could round up to six maybe. <laughs> so when you have someone like Jake Wharton on the show, there are like a ton of things we can go on chatting about. Unfortunately, uh, time is always the enemy. So... But the, uh, the unique thing about having Jake is like Jake's released like a bunch of stuff already online. He's very kind in releasing most of the stuff that he works on and like the content that he uh, builds for conferences, videos, blog posts, etc. So what we thought in the show we'd like to do is like this is a unique opportunity for us like to find out about things that we otherwise wouldn't know about Jake. So we want to like touch upon how Jake uh, got into Android development and how like how he's become such an amazing developer and how he's helped the community specifically with Android and also uh, some of the newer open source libraries that aren't as uh, uh, sort of used as the others like there's a new one uh, out by the folks at Square uh, called Moshi which is a JSON library so we'll try to touch upon some of those libraries. Now, again, when I say not as famous, everything's relative. I guess, like, if you go and talk to an Android developer today and ask him or her if they know what Picasso is, they'll think it's probably a part of the Android <laughs> framework. Like, some of these libraries like Dagger and Picasso are sort of a staple for any 
Android developer these days. So we're going to touch upon certain libraries that you probably may not be using as much and get Jake's uh, get Jake's opinion on them. Definitely. So we're gonna, I like to start with the, the more of the meta stuff first. Now, Jake, I think me, you and I originally met, I think, face-to-face at AndDevCon, like, number two, maybe. And that was, I don't know, it's back when, that's back before you worked at Square. And I know that you were just working uh, with, I think it was Action Bar Sherlock and maybe a couple other libraries at that time. And so that was, I remember having the discussion with you at the time about how did you get into Android development? And I found it pretty interesting. And um, I'm not sure a lot of people have had that conversation with you. So would you mind telling us a little bit like how you got into Android development? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, when Android was initially announced, they they released the, a preview SDK. And alongside the preview SDK was a contest. Uh, and there were something like $10 million in prizes uh, across, spread across a bunch of categories. And uh, basically, you would win $250,000 for first place in a category or $100,000 for second place and then like $10,000 for third. And so being a, a college student at the time and having very limited finan- you know, financial uh, income, I was determined to win $250,000 or $100,000, whatever. <laughs> awesome. And I was going to be set, you know, that was going to, I was going to be set the rest of my life. Uh, Sounds like the perfect plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I set off and I knew I had to do something ambitious. So I, uh, I chose to do like a, an image editing, like a, a Photoshop esque, uh, image editing app where you could draw and there were layers and, uh, would have like all the Porter Duff blending modes and, uh, you know, way, way over my head, uh, Ultimately, I think I finished like what would be maybe 10% of what an acceptable app should be and didn't submit anything to the contest. Uh, but it sparked my kind of uh, interest in Android and, and ended up just having me always come back to it because uh, it was so approachable and really easy to work with. Now, what were you, work- what were you working with at the time? Were you always doing Java, Java development? Uh, at that time, I was pretty heavily focused on Python. Uh, just being in in school, we mostly worked with uh, C or Java, okay. and Python was like, you know, being a new developer, Python was like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> you know, everything dynamic, and it was super forgiving, and uh, you know, you had so much more power and much less um, surface area of the what you had to write. And, uh, yeah, so I was forced back into Java for Android and now I've kind of seen the light and it's actually what I prefer. Excellent. So I think a lot of people initially probably ran into you in the early days from the Action Bar Sherlock uh, library. How did that come to be? Yeah. So years later, you know, I never had an Android device, but I had been doing Android development just because it was... Uh, I had already paid the like $25 fee and, you know, you could do it on Linux. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was working for a company where I was transitioning them from physical servers to virtualized servers. We were using uh, VMware vSphere and it was all like gross.net uh, interfaces and stuff. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted to write an Android client for it so that I could, you know, be like moving my VMs on the fly from my phone. And this was right at the time that Honeycomb came out. Uh, so wanting to support all the 
all the different form factors, you know, I, I was uh, enticed by the action bar and I had to have it. And while there had been existing solutions for your own action bar, there was nothing that kind of gave you the best of both worlds, which was the native experience on newer APIs and the compatibility experience on older APIs. So I said, before I write this app, I'm going to write a little shim that's going to do this for me. And, you know, then I'll get to the app. Just a little uh, shim. Just a tiny little shim. <laughs> yeah. Just to get, you know, something working. Uh, and then one thing led to another and I never wrote the app and I ended up spending, you know, hundreds or thousands of hours writing action bar Sherlock. <laughs> it wow. just spiraled out of control. I think Don, you were actually one of, one of the first handful of people to actually jump in and start adopting it and actually requesting additional features. So if anything, yeah. I can, I can blame you for <laughs> not, not never writing that app. <laughs> I remember talking to you about that at the, or when we met at the conference and you, and you, and you said that like, I never got to finish the app and because action bar Sherlock just had taken so much of your time. So now that like app compat has come out and everything has uh action bar Sherlock finally been retired or what's the status of that? Yeah. I, I, I think most people pretty much understood that when, uh, the, the initial app compat launched, uh, you know, 12 or 16 months ago, whenever it was, that that was really the end of Action Bar Sherlock. So all, all that was left was pretty much maintaining support for existing, uh, you know, existing integrations. Because mm -hmm. if you, th there was little reason to actually make the switch when it first came out, because uh, they both had the same value proposition. And it was, it was not until the, all the lollipop stuff and the material stuff came out that you really had a strong uh, value proposition in making the switch if you hadn't already done so. Right. And so once once that started happening, uh, that was really the the final nail in the coffin. And I put a big you know deprecated tag on GitHub, and the website hasn't been updated. So now how did that how did that feel after all those thousands of hours of work that you did? Did that was that a relief or or how did it feel personally to be able to do? Oh that? yeah, uh, nothing gives me greater joy than having a library become obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's like a uh, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of fun in creating something new and, and supporting it and having a library become popular. But the fact that something is no longer needed because there's you know a better or first party solution that actually does the job and, and does it better than you mm -hmm. is like, you know, I just absolutely love completely killing that project off and saying, you know, here's something better and it has you know proper support behind it, better documentation, and now it has you know a ton of more features than I ever could have provided. So it, it was a really good feeling. Cool. So I think a lot of people might be interested to learn kind of what is, as an Android developer, what does your setup look like? I mean, do you run multiple monitors? Do you use Motion? Do you use a, a, just a device, uh, a custom Android Studio configuration? What's, what's kind of your, your dev setup look like if we were to kind of sit right next to you as a fly on the wall watching you develop? Yeah, so right now I'm kind of transitioning between setups. I'm uh, moving from working out of... Uh, Square's, you know, main office where I had a second monitor and monitor stand and, uh, you know, a standing table, adjustable table, you know, really nice things. And I'm actually working from home now. Okay. So my, my setup has been drastically reduced. Uh, I don't have a second monitor yet and I thought I would really miss it, but I'm really enjoying the fact that uh, a single monitor forces focus. So when I'm in, you know, Android studio or IntelliJ or whatever, uh, I full screen it and then I'm, you know, completely uh, isolated from notifications and emails and, 
uh, chat and Twitter, whatever. Uh, and it, it actually has really kind of helped me focus more. So I'm thinking I might keep that. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's still like kind of in doing Android development. Uh, I switched between Jetty Motion and a physical device just on a whim. You know, if I happen to be charging my phone, I'll just use that. Hmm. Or if I'm on a plane, Jenny Motion, something like that. Okay. Um, I don't really have a preference between the two. Um, Jenny Motion, you know, gives you some things like being able to uh, have pixel, you know, it'll snap the uh, the rendering to be pixel perfect with your physical screen. So when you zoom in, you can like, when you zoom in on the Mac, like the accessibility zoom, you can get down and like really see pixel perfect, which is really nice. And then it obviously has like the recording controls and GPS controls that um, while we have options for that on the physical device, it's, it's much more easy when you're doing it through Jenny Motion. Excellent. Um, as the Android Studio, I, I mostly keep the configs and stuff the same. Uh, we have a style for Square. We actually have two styles. We have one for the just general Java, and then we have one that's Android specific, which is a, a tiny bit more customized. Um, and then as to the editor, yeah, it's it's mostly left the same. The one thing that I do change is I turn off uh, turn off all the toolbars. I turn off tabs which is a, a kind of controversial thing. I rely solely on Command-E and uh, Command-Shift-A, which is the, like... The action uh, thing. The search. Uh, I use that for, like, splitting windows. You search for, like, split, and it'll let you split vertically or split horizontally. But so all of my navigation is... And then, obviously, Command-O for opening things. But all of my navigation is done through those three uh, shortcuts. I'd never, like... I never have uh, the actual tabs on the top of the screen that I click between. Uh, it's it's a really interesting workflow. I actually saw an article from a, one of the guys that works at JetBrains, I believe, who kind of evangelized this technique. Mm-hmm. And while it was initially extremely difficult because you kind of feel lost and uh, you know not having those tabs up there to kind of show you where you've been and quickly jump between, you feel like you feel like it's hard to move. But once you kind of get accustomed to Command-E, which is like a history of where you've been, and um, some of the shortcuts that you guys touched on a few episodes ago for like going to last edited position, mm-hmm. once you get really accustomed to those, uh, I just found that I actually am uh, moving around much more quickly, which so it's, it's the tabs actually end up slowing you down. Do you use like the new, the Zen mode or something that's come with uh, the uh, the 14, the IntelliJ 14 versions? Or do you actually just uh, turn off, like, try to remove your tabs and do them manually? Yeah, I, I just do it manually. It's just disable the toolbars, turn off tabs, and then um, change the, the tool windows, the like border so that it auto hides. Ah, okay. uh, and it basically just leaves you with the, um, at the top I have the, like the breadcrumbs, the the file structure, so you can see where you're at. Mm-hmm. And then I have the run run config on the upper right hand corner. And those occupy the same line. Kalshik, don't you do something similar? Aren't you very minimal in your setup? <laughs> yeah, I mean so I actually have a huge monitor and like even on that huge monitor I try to like I do have the tabs show though. Uh, I've I haven't gotten to sort of removing the tabs yet. But yeah, I mean it makes sense. I'm probably gonna try removing the tabs as well i just like yeah. having the code in front of me and just like looking at the code it just yeah i don't know if it actually makes a difference but yeah it makes me feel like i'm more focused so i'll, I'll uh i have the link to that 
post. So I'll find it and we can uh, toss it in the show notes and send it to you guys. That'd be awesome. Perfect. Do you have a favorite device that you use on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I'm actually uh, rocking the old school Nexus 4 right wow. now. Nexus yeah. 4? Wow. Nexus 4, the white one. Oh. Uh, it's it's an absolutely beautiful piece of hardware. Uh, I actually really, really like it. And the, the, the only reason I'm doing this is uh, in, in the, whatever, 10 or 12 years that I've owned a mobile phone, I've never broken, I've never like completely broken a phone to render it unusable. Mm-hmm. Always taking good care. I've never used cases or anything either. Uh, just taking good care of them. But for whatever reason, in the last like five months, I have just destroyed three Nexus 5s. Um, So I I don't know what it is. So maybe it was just never meant to be. So uh, I'm back on uh, Nexus 4 now, and I I can't upgrade to the Nexus 6 because I don't have giant hands. So um, I'm going to hold off with the 4 until uh, a hopefully more reasonable Nexus phone comes out in the fall. That's kind of the way that I felt about the 6. And even though I'm a bigger guy and I do have bigger hands, I, I just don't want to feel like I'm holding up like a tablet to my face um, <laughs> when I'm on the phone. And it just feels, and I just see it, and it's so huge. So I'm in, the, I'm in the same camp as you for sure. Although now that the Project Phi has been announced and then only works on the Nexus 6, right. <laughs> that might be the thing that actually will force me to get one. So what exactly is Project Phi for those that don't know? Yeah, so it was announced, I think, yesterday or two days ago, uh, which is, well, when this airs, it'll be a few days ago. Um, it's Google's sort of a meta wireless carrier where they, they abstract away the actual uh, cell provider. So in this case, they're using both Sprint and T-Mobile. And then they're also leveraging Wi-Fi. So as you move around, uh, as you know, either Sprint or T-Mobile has better service, or perhaps you're in the range of high-speed Wi-Fi, it will transparently switch between uh, these different networks, all while, you know, not losing data connectivity. Wow. And, um, you know, they have competitive pricing, and it's mostly emphasized on data, because obviously, even talk and text is data, despite the fact that, you know, carriers insist on billing it otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's emphasized on on data and charging you for only what you use, not for like uh, a tiered structure. It'll be interesting to see uh, how it, how it plays out. I'm excited to kind of get my hands on it and see how it works. I was pretty excited about the announcement too. Unfortunately, uh, about last week, I think I sold my soul and I got a Samsung <laughs> S6. <laughs> It was, I mean, I've been a huge, I mean, I've always been sort of anti-Samsung, but uh, I don't know, I made this, I, it was like a whim, like, so my contract was up, so I thought I'll just go and see if I could get a better phone, and uh, I've heard good things about the camera, and I must say, the camera on this device is amazing, this TouchWiz is, is just, yeah, it's horrible, horrible, horrible. Uh, I've, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got another like 20 days, I guess, to exchange it. And I think TouchWiz just might do it for me. I mean, like go back and <laughs> change the device and wait for the Nexus 6 now that Fi is announced, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give it a fair shot. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, I believe, uh, the six, the five and the four, are like one of the, are three of the five top devices we see in most apps as, uh, the most used piece of hardware. 
Yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, for in terms of metrics, like in uh, like collecting data about your apps, do you use like Google Analytics? Do you use like Crashlytics or something, or like uh, what do you guys generally use? Yeah, it it varies a little bit. Uh, we also have our own in-house system. Uh, not really metrics. I mean, it can be used for metrics and analytics. It's like an event. Uh, it's just a generic event service, and then you know internally we can write more specific uh, projections of that data. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we, we have relied on, you know, external services in the past and mm-hmm. still sometimes do for smaller projects, whether it's like a, a mixed panel or like a flurry or uh-huh. uh, a, a crashlytics or bug snag for crashes and uh, things like that. Makes sense. So going into development, I thought like we can touch upon some things that at least I've always wanted to know. So Jake, I'm sure you mentor like a bunch of Android developers today, both in and out of uh, Square. So if an Android developer came up to you and asked specifically like, hey, what are five things I should be doing to sort of get better? What would like your suggestion be? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I can definitely think of some. We'll see if I can get five. <laughs> uh, I think one of the biggest ones that we see now, not so much as the, the uh, developers that I interact with directly at Square, but just kind of in the community is there's this sense of the fact that uh, like every engineer, everything that comes out of Google is like uh, the canonical way and the only way of doing something. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that it's not to say that like some of the smartest people in the world don't work there, and uh, some of the best you know ideas and libraries for Android actually do come out of there. It's just the the problem is the blind acceptance uh, of anything that comes out of Google as like the way of doing something. I agree. So there's you just uh, having this sense where uh, you just need to like think and judge for yourself as to whether or not, you know, something, whether it be a library, whether it be a technique or a pattern is actually the right solution for your needs, your requirements and your applications. Mm. Uh, Just, just, you know, and maybe it is, you know, I think oftentimes it almost always is the right solution, but just uh, losing that, losing that, like, uh, unquestioning acceptance of something. Mm-hmm. I think we see. I think we see a little too much of that today. So uh, that that would definitely be a big one. Uh, let's see. I think being extremely comfortable with uh, going down into like the Android source code is something that's extremely important to know how to do mm-hmm. and to know to know like where to look. Um, there's nothing like the realization that there's nothing magic happening. Like there's always an answer. And that answer might be uh, just inside, you know, text view, which is an awful huge file, but, you know, it's in there. (laughs) (laughs) Or fragments, right? Your favorite. Or fragment or, yeah. Uh, (laughs) But there's always like, there's always an answer, right? And if you can take the time, you figure out where the source is and you figure out how to like follow, um, follow, you know, method calls inside the, the Android source code, uh, being able to do that is an extremely valuable resource and you'll end up solving a lot of problems that otherwise would end up, uh, you know, just on stack overflow or mm-hmm. somewhere like that. Uh, geez, that was only two. Let's see. Um, quick follow up on the source code. So yeah. when you sort of navigate, uh, and like try to dig into the source code, do you have any, sp- like, I remember seeing either a mention on Twitter or something where you basically gave, uh, advice uh, to someone on how you should be navigating. Do you have it linked inside Android Studio? Do you actually use Chrome with like some extension? Like, uh, 
if I wanted to quickly dive into the source code, like how do you do it? Uh, yeah, I think there's a few ways. Uh, the easiest is uh, with Android Studio now, it will link the sources, assuming you have them downloaded, it will automatically link the sources for your compile version. So the, like, the version of Android you're compiling against, the sources will automatically be linked. So you can just use your normal uh, shortcuts to you know, command B directly into your text views and your, your uh, view groups or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes it's not, it, it's just like a subset. It's only kind of what's, what's exposed in the APIs link there. Mm-hmm. So if you end up, it's very hard to like follow method calls that traverse into um, parts of parts of Android that aren't actually public APIs. Um, so for that, I actually I do have the Android uh, the AOSP entire source tree cloned, mm-hmm. uh, wow. and, and it takes quite a lot of space. So <laughs> I, I don't necessarily recommend that for everyone. Uh, and you kind of alluded to this, but there's there's two good ways to actually browse the source on the web. There's a Chrome extension, uh, which I think is Roman Merrick's extension, the um, SDK. I forget the name of it. Um, we'll have a link to it. Show notes, yeah. It, yeah it, it, so not only does it let you search for um, search for APIs in the Omnibar in Chrome, but whenever you're viewing Javadoc on the developer site, it puts a link to the source code for that class directly on the page, and you can just jump right into it. Now, the disadvantage there is that it's just plain text, right? You're just looking at um, the plain text of source of that file. So it's you can't, again, jump around very easily. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a website called, well, there's actually two. There's one called uh, Android XREF, mm-hmm. which actually linkifies like method calls and such. And then there's uh, grep code which also hosts the Android source code and allows you to kind of jump between versions and jump around inside of it. Makes sense. So there's a bunch of different ways. I guess it kind of depends on what you're doing. I'll often be, uh, I'll often use the view source link on the web and find that the answer is not directly in this source file, so I need to go elsewhere. And that's where I'll either jump to my local copy of the source code or I'll jump over to one of those other websites. Cool. So we'll follow up through. If, if you think of any other tips, we can pop back in later in the show. It's no big deal. Um, we'll, we'll just keep moving here. If I think one of the questions that, that Kaushik and, and maybe a lot of people have is, if Square was hiring an Android developer, what would be some of the skills that, that you would specifically look for in an Android developer? Yeah, so we are hiring <laughs> as, a, as a slight correction there. What? Uh, but yeah, there's a, there's a, I think there's a few... Uh, at least that I personally look for. I really like seeing uh, developers come in that are multidisciplined. So, like, it's it's fine if Android is your you know your main thing, but I really like seeing where somebody has you know like a Ruby or a Python or a JavaScript project, or maybe they wrote some funky thing in Haskell or um, potentially newer languages like Rust or. Uh, just just seeing that they're not solely um, kind of constraining themselves to a single platform and a single language. Because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of value in just seeing what else is happening. Even if you're not uh, a master of one of those other languages, uh, as long as you're being exposed to it, you're, 
opening your mind up to different ways of approaching problems and uh, you know solving problems and different techniques. So just just seeing that uh, is is a really strong uh, indicator of someone that kind of has a desire to do more than just be the best you know Android developer because you can't be the best Android developer unless you kind of open your mind up to those things. Especially if you're interviewing with Jake Warden, I mean it's kind of hard. But... My, I'm not too tough to interview. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, uh, I think I, I think I'm not too, uh, hopefully not too like uh, unapproachable, and <laughs> I, I try and have a very casual interview. Uh, but actually, another another good one, which kind of uh, is similar, is uh, a very strong indicator. I think is a a good grasp of tooling. So if you're doing Java. Um, at least at Square, we let you, you know, we don't do whiteboard or anything. You're in front of a computer and you can use whatever you want. So if you're in, you know, you can be in IntelliJ and if you're using shortcuts and, um, you know, to pop Java doc for a method or to refactor or to, you know, extract methods, extract variables, that's like a, that's a really strong sign from, uh, that the, that you have, you know, you're in this tool and not only are you in the tool, but you've mastered the tool and you've made it work for you rather than just using it as sort of a dumb text editor. Uh, I've seen like people come in and they choose Vim and I'm like, Oh, Vim, I'm not, you know, I'm not, not a Vim or Emacs person, but they'll just start, you know, it looks like they're not even, uh, they're just like button mashing on the keyboard and you know, Vim is just like bent to their will and it's, it's doing all these crazy things. And that's like, I love seeing that because it means that, you know, this person spends a ton of time in Vim and rather than wasting their time doing repetitive tasks, they've, they've figured out how to make Vim work hard for them. Makes sense. Uh, I also am a big fan of like making sure the tools work for you. I mean, if I find myself typing something more than twice or thrice and I'm like, huh, can I make that a live template or, you know, with IntelliJ? I think that makes a lot of sense. You have to use the tools to their fullest potential. Uh, so what I else? I agree. Um, I think probably the other, another big one is just the resourcefulness of someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times you'll see people come in and, and we say this up front is that, you know, use whatever you want, whether it's the internet or libraries, anything. Uh, I really like if, if I ask you a question and I say, uh, I don't know what's an interview problem. Like do solve the, um, the Queens on the chessboard thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's a library out there, if there's a Python library out there, that's just like a one liner where it's like solve the eight Queens problem. <laughs> yeah. And that, that gives you the answer you can use that, but you better be prepared to defend that choice and explain, you know, why, how it's working and why it's better than writing your own. Uh, and then you also better be, you know, our interview is not going to be just two minutes of you writing that one method. You also better be prepared for what comes after that, which is when I change the problem, mm-hmm. how are you going to, you know, reconcile that with this library? That's a good idea. Yeah. Those are great tips uh, on basically like getting started and becoming a better developer. But what if I wanted to take it to like, you know, the next level, like the simple questions. Okay. I want to become better than Jake Wharton. So what should I be doing? I mean, what does Jake Wharton do to basically (laughs) Uh, like take it to the next level? Where do you draw your inspiration from? Like, I guess it goes back to kind of what I said earlier, which is the multidiscipline thing. 
Uh, and I gave a lot of examples that actually are personal to me. I really enjoy reading about what other languages, what other libraries, uh, especially ones that are kind of on the bleeding edge and really, really emerging right now, mm -hmm. what they're doing to solve common problems. So, uh, like Go obviously has become wildly popular in the last year or so, and uh, it's really brought to light, you know, concurrency and lightweight threads, things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, Rust is a fairly new language, just about to hit a 1.0, and it has some really interesting things about, um, like, the scoping of objects and who owns objects and how that plays into, like, concurrency Uh, it, it, so really just kind of reading what else is going on other than just, you know, Java and Android, hmm. because there's a lot of really smart people that are not doing Android and are not doing Java. And if you're not mm -hmm. kind of looking at what they're doing, you're going to miss things that you can take from and actually apply to Android or apply to Java. Um, JavaScript's another big one. I, you know, everyone hates JavaScript and <laughs> likes to, likes to kind of, <laughs> you know, likes to call out all its faults, but it's a language where you can get away with so many things that really enables people to write right. some, uh, stunning libraries and, uh, you know, patterns with. Um, I, I assume eventually we're going to talk about RxJava, and I'll just say that my knowledge of RxJava was kind of taken to the next level when I found uh, libraries that were built on the JavaScript version of Reactive RxJS, and specifically, there's one called CycleJS, which is just this like taking Reactive to the extreme. Like, take it to its logical extreme where everything is reactive. Uh, and just, it, it kind of blew my mind, and I, I cannot stop playing with it. It's an absolutely fantastic piece that I've, uh, through this, I've learned a ton of things about just how to model things in a reactive style. And now I can apply that back to our, our Java usage in Android. Interesting. CycleJS. I haven't heard of that. I've looked at RxJS, but yeah, I've never heard of CycleJS. That'll be pretty interesting to look at yeah definitely had a link to it uh it's andre stoltz i think is the guy's name he's given a bunch of talks as well mm -hmm. and i think he actually works on he contributes a lot to rxjs uh in tandem with CycleJS. so obviously open source is uh, a big thing for the folks at square and also for you you've released like a ton of libraries that are super useful I had a bunch of questions, but before we even go into that, uh, I want our listeners to definitely take a look at uh, a recent keynote that you gave with uh, another person who has the same initials as you, <laughs> Jesse Wilson. Uh, both of uh, so both of you gave like the keynote at uh, DroidCon Montreal, right? So um, that was all about open source. So definitely, I think listeners should have a, a look at that. I had some questions uh, specifically about open source, so. You've, I mean, obviously with Action Bar, Sherlock, uh, Timber, Hugo, like these are, there are like a bunch of uh, open source libraries that you've personally released and have done very well in that it's become super useful for many people. But one key aspect about open source projects is knowing how to sort of captain the ship properly, like maintaining the library, nurturing it, uh, making sure it, like you do the right things and uh 
people who use the library don't get frustrated. Do you have any sort of stories to share, any tips on how we should be sort of uh, captaining an open source project and trying to ensure that it becomes a success while it is useful to most people who consume it? Yeah, I think there's definitely a few very uh, important aspects of you know being at the head or being participating and leading a project. Uh, and you're right, we do touch on this in that uh, keynote. So I, I would definitely suggest people uh, check it out because there is a video now that was just posted. Um, one of the big ones, I guess, is just really understanding what the goals of the library are and how much, uh, like how much of the uh, solution to that to the problem that the library is trying to solve actually belongs in the library. So we touch on this in the keynote, but. Uh, Basically, every library, almost every library, is going to come with some, you know, eighty or ninety percent of the features that you actually want, mm -hmm. and then there's still going to be some aspect that is not handled. Uh, you know, whether it's tying into your data sources or using a different serialization format or you know whatever, there's some aspect that you're still going to have to do yourself. Um, and a lot of people are going to feel like, "Wow, uh, I have this problem." So everyone else must have this problem, and I'm going to make this library better by contributing back to it and adding this, you know, fundamental missing feature. Like, I can't believe they missed this. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you come to realize, and what's very important for a project maintainer to to have, is the strong discipline on what actually belongs in the library and what does not. Uh, you want you want you definitely want to make sure that the features in the library are going to be uh, applicable to as many people as possible, ideally everyone. Because once you start introducing you know, features and uh, extension points that are specific to uh, a, a tiny subset of your users, uh, you, you're, mm. these things are not, they're not free, right? They're, they're, gonna, um, they're gonna end up causing you know, burden on you, the maintainer, over time. And ultimately, they're going to end up interacting with each other. So the person that wants um, support for Jackson, not JSON, mm -hmm. is going to be conflicting with the person that wants to use JSON annotations in another part of the library. Well, and this actually is a, an example that came up recently mm -hmm. in one of our libraries where uh, it would be useful to, to say, oh, well, if you're using JSON, we can use, you know, one of its features somewhere else in the library. But then if you're not using JSON, well, what does that mean for um, this feature somewhere else in the library mm -hmm. if the person's using Jackson? Or maybe they're not even using JSON. Or JSON. Um, so it's just being, being mindful of what actually belongs in the library and what doesn't. There's a lot to be said about samples and example code and uh, what what belongs in like even just test cases that show you how to do things that may only appeal to some people. And I think those are the right places for those features to go, you know, direct, direct these things into a sample project or uh, maybe someone else's their own library that adds to yours. Um, it, it's, I think, uh, as a new, as a new maintainer of a project, especially one that, you know, becomes popular very quickly 
it can be tempting to just accept anything that anyone is willing to contribute because it's, it's a vastly exciting thing. Uh, and you want to kind of engage and enrich the experience of all your users. But ultimately, if you do this, you're going to end up uh, harming them in the long term, uh, just because the library will kind of grow out of your control. So you bring up, you know, contributors, which is which is excellent. Um, now, I've contributed to a couple of libraries, some Square stuff, some of your stuff, some other ones as well. Uh, and I'm familiar with it, but I think there's a lot of people that are not familiar with how to contribute to open source. Um, what's probably the best recommendations you can give to someone who wants to contribute? Is it should they be following some type of guidelines? How do they make you know a, a good pull request? Should it be small? Should it be large? Or, or what can they start helping with right out of the gate? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there, uh, and there's a lot that you can do. I think there's uh, definitely some important things to take into consideration when you're trying to contribute. Uh, I really like when people start small, you know, if, if I don't know you personally or through other contributions, I'm going to be hesitant initially of anything that you're trying to, uh, change. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, by starting small with, you know, uh, fixing a tiny bug or maybe even just like documentation changes, it's a great way to kind of just kickstart a relationship with a project maintainer. Uh, and we, we touch on this in the keynote again, where uh, if you're adopting a library for the first time, so if you're just pulling in JSON or whatever for the first time, you're in a unique position where you're going through parts of the documentation that the project maintainers you know, never really uh, have a a good experience with, which is, you know, the getting started, the first run experience, the integration experience. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to find problems with it. You're going to find, you know, errors. You're going to find APIs that have changed and the documentation hasn't been updated. Those are great first contributions to a project because not only is the project maintainer going to get to know you as a contributor, but you're going to get to know the project maintainer and whether or not they're receptive to these changes, whether or not they're active and merging these in and making releases. Uh, or maybe you'll find out that the project is just completely abandoned, uh, and that's a good indicator to you that maybe you shouldn't be using it. But, uh, yeah, to, to code, to actually getting into, like, the meat of the library and contributing to it, I'd say there's, like, a, a solid three things that should be done for most changes, which is uh, start off with a discussion whether it be, you know, just on a Git, an existing GitHub issue or a new GitHub issue about mm -hmm. whether the, like what the right, what, first off, it's a feature, whether the feature is needed and wanted in the library. And if it's a bug fix, whether or not, uh, if it's not trivial, whether or not the, the approach that you're going to take to fix the bug is the right one. Uh, because I think there's nothing worse in the project and contributor relationship than, you writing a bunch of code, submitting it as a pull request, and then just they don't want to merge it for whatever reason because you didn't you didn't communicate up front that you know you were going to be doing all this work. And it's awkward for both of you because you wrote all the code, they don't want the code. Uh, so just just start with a discussion on you know a GitHub issue or whatever or whatever wherever the project's hosted. Uh, then, of course, making the change is important. You want to adhere to the existing style of the project, tabs, four spaces, two spaces, 
wear the you know curly braces on a new line or the same line, things like that. Hungarian um, notation is yeah, oh, thing yeah. you love. Yeah, <laughs> love that Hungarian notation. But if the projects, you know, if they're using it, I'm gonna and I'm contributing to it. I'm gonna slap that M and I'm gonna slap that S in front of my variables just because <laughs> I want I I don't want the I don't want someone to go into a source file and be like oh yeah I see these you know twelve lines of code this must have been what Jake contributed because it's not using Hungarian notation and it's only two space indent that's not what you want you want mm-hmm. the entire source file to feel like a cohesive uh, you know chunk that is otherwise just um, not really owned by any single person, but it just fits in with everything else in their project. Completely agree. Great point. And then the, the third thing is just uh, tests. I mean, tests on Android, you, you guys covered this in the first episode, but if it's a, it's a lot easier if it's just like a Java library that's used on Android. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. But submitting changes with tests are, is the best because it saves me from having to do manual verification and oftentimes we can just hit the giant green button and merge or change, you know, without any ceremony whatsoever. Um, another thing that we kind of touch on in the, the keynote is a great, another great first contribution. If it's not, not necessarily first, but if you're unable to actually fix a bug or you're unable to actually implement a feature for whatever reason, uh, like I think uh, RxJava is actually a really, unapproachable library for contributing complex fixes to because there are some insanely smart people working on it and they're squeezing every ounce of performance out of it, which means the code is, uh, it can be very hard to read because it's very performance sensitive, but uh, it's very easy to write just a test, which demonstrates either a bug or demonstrates a desired feature. So maybe you can't write a bug fix, but you can submit a pull request that contains a test which is failing. And then that allows the project maintainer to, they're the ones that are familiar with the code. They can just jump in with your test case and they'll be able to very quickly fix the bug. Um, it's it's kind of like this the bug report, but with superpowers because it gives me, gives me, it gives the project maintainer a way to concretely know whether they've fixed the problem that you're reporting. I think that's probably one of the best open source tips I've heard in probably years. Just submit a failing test. That's a phenomenal tip there. So I think those are great tips, Jake. And we talked previously about Action More Sherlock, how you had basically kind of deprecated it at one point because of AppCapac came out and so forth. Now, are there other instances that you have encountered or do you have any ideas of of when it's a good time to kind of kill off an open source project other than the instance of maybe it's been deprecated by a, a better library from Google or so forth. Do you have, um, do you have any ideas or have you killed off any other projects? So I, I've killed off like four or five, I think in the past year or so, at least personal ones. But I think all of those instances have been where uh, the, the functionality and the features have been offered by Google by either uh, merging into the support library or uh, like AppCompat, like you said. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess another reason would be, I guess there's two other kind of ones that I can see. So with ActionBar Sherlock came uh, a library called Nine Old Androids, which was a backport of the Honeycomb 
uh, animation APIs, the APIs that came out in basically across all of the three Honeycomb releases, uh, it backported those to API 1, which was fun. Uh, API 1, wow. API 1, <laughs> yeah. Actually, this, if you, you go don't to support the nine, that anymore? I do not support that anymore. <laughs> oh, tisk oh, tisk. <laughs> I guess I'm going to change what I'm doing. <laughs> but like, uh, the, so the library hasn't been updated in quite some time. And mm-hmm. there have been newer APIs that were introduced in um, the animation framework. Mm-hmm. But the whole point of nine old androids was taking the, for you know, the purposes of argument, let's just call it ICS, taking the ICS and up APIs and putting them on pre honeycomb. And if you've been following the trends of the uh, device dashboard, the dashboard that has the statistics of um, what APIs, what versions of Android are accessing the play store, you've seen that, over the last uh, year or so, pre-Honeycomb has you know, been drastically dropping. Uh, I think Gingerbread's down to, I don't know, 8% or something. And then you know, Froyo and Claire have fallen off the chart. So the, the need for these libraries is just going away because uh, you really aren't targeting those APIs anymore. So you don't need that functionality. Uh, so that, I guess that's one case. I mean, you could kind of call that being replaced by by Google since it's in Android, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know if I would call it exactly that because you still have like AppCompat needs to exist and it will probably always exist as just this uh, library that supports a window of API levels and always backports kind of the latest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it will the need for it will probably never go away, whereas the the animation APIs aren't always being updated like the design languages so um, just the need for the library kind of disappeared Uh, and then I guess the other one would be just when a a better solution has come out so we kind of haven't put the nail in the coffin yet but I think a a good example of this is kind of auto the event bus library that we have at Uh, Square mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we haven't used well Auto's still kind of in use a little bit, but at least on the projects I've been working on, we haven't used Auto in a year and a half, if not more. Oh wow! Um, there's really, there's really, so it's not like it's not going away or anything. But I think there's two kind of important uh, things that have happened. One is that we think we found a better mechanism, and that mechanism is the reactive APIs, you know, ArcJava where we can create a much more specific pipeline of events than a giant generic bus that just uh, shoves any event across it. Mm-hmm. And now that's not to say that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that the complexity of our applications has grown to the point where that's just not a reasonable solution. And then I think the other thing is that the library itself uh, is very narrow in focus. It does one thing and it tries to do that one thing very well. And there just hasn't been a strong need for a ton of new features that, that have been developing in it. So the, the project just sits and it sits you know, as it is uh, and it doesn't really need any constant maintenance as project maintainers. And we really don't get many contributions in 
that are that would add a lot of value to the project. So um, while I'm not going to say that the project's like retired and it's deprecated or anything, it's just it's just kind of stagnant. But that's fine. It's kind and, of a maintenance mode almost, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's stable. It works. It solves a very specific problem. And while we've mostly outgrown it ourselves, there's no real pressing need to deprecate it. But we don't. We also don't have to, you know, give a lot of our time to it. Mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, it's just kind of sitting there. And I think that's a fine thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, it's just something to be aware of as like a project maintainer that this, you know, eventually might happen. And that's a fine thing. You just just leave it there and let it be. And if the time comes, the time will come where either we can just say, hey, this is done. Let's deprecate it. Or, hey, um, maybe we should take a look at this again and, you know, breathe new life into it and revitalize it. But neither of those things are happening now. So there it sits. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, especially like one challenge, I guess, with auto is like many, at least like a couple of the other projects I've worked on use auto. And I don't really have a strong inclination at this point to go and like rip it out, like even though like there are alternatives. So I guess like that's another reason to like have it going, right? Like, do you have any of uh, any of the square projects that use auto internally uh, already, which you don't intend to sort of like change at this point? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, we have seen its usage decline a bit as we've pushed RxJava into more of our apps. But there's there's pieces of pieces of the apps that have just been sitting on uh, auto as the mechanism of transferring information, and there's no reason to there's no reason to change them unless you know something comes up where it breaks. Or we could add uh, some behavior that would be more advantageous than just leaving it as is. Makes sense. All right. It's time to wrap up the first part of the show with Jake. Now, Jake was super kind and stayed on to share a lot more information about RX Android, SQLbrite, and his amazing picks for the show. So definitely do stay tuned for the next episode. You can find the show notes for episode six at fragmentedpodcast.com slash episodes slash six. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.